0: from AUA 2018 the second opinion case on BPH
1: so members and guests panelists thanks for uh, allowing us to present in a case based format the new BPH guidelines at least the surgical management thereof so our distinguished panel includes Harris Foster from Yale University he's the chair of this new 2018 guideline, myself co-chair, Steve Kaplan from Icon School of Medicine, Mount Sinai in New York City, long-term uh, panelist, and Chuck Welliver, Charles Wellover from Albany Me- Medical College. So this is the panel that we're going to hear from today as we have several cases which I hope illustrate some of the salient new developments in the BPH <coughs> guidelines. So want to shout out to the entire guideline panel, which could not be up here on the stage. They're listed here, particularly our colleagues, the methodologists from Minnesota. I'll talk uh, about them in a second. As well as the AUA staff, guideline staff that were particularly helpful, Brooke, Abed, and Aaron. So where did this start? Well, the panel ourselves, we developed key questions, questions that we thought might be useful uh, to the guidelines. And then looking at various interventions, comparative groups, and what kind of outcomes. So we gave these questions, or these these issues, to the Minnesota Evidence-Based Practice Center, who then began to filter through the data and summarize the key questions into three themes, perioperative parameters, surgical management, and issues that deal with acute urinary retention. Our meeting was held in Washington D.C. in January. It was a cold day and of course, our Minnesota group uh, arrived in their specially made car. Uh, They got there on time. So how did the data go? We ended up with some almost 3000 articles. Uh, Through their screening, we ended up to address these three thematic uh, questions. We ended up with 67 articles and two of the key questions, no, no, uh, pertaining to preoperative questions, there were no articles that we could review. I'll discuss those in a second. Um, Sixty-five articles concerning surgical management, and two on acute retention. So from there, we began uh, formulating the guidelines, doing the usual AUA evidence-based uh, method, and now cases. So our first case, which we hope illustrates some of the new uh, statements, is a sexually active 52-year-old male. He has recalcitrant lower urinary tract symptoms. I think some of the points here, uh, lots of symptoms. He has a ultrasound volume of 35 grams and a representative cystoscopy here. Steve Kaplan, how are you gonna treat such a person? So I think we have to
2: make sure that the patient's symptoms are from BPH. He's been treated obviously for both BPH and OAB symptoms. Uh, There are potentially things like uh, medications for nocturia if that's his most bothersome symptoms. That being said, he'd be a good candidate uh, for minimally invasive therapy, be it uh, convective water vapor um, or um, a urolift type of procedure. And many of these points that uh, are evidenced on this slide are actually also uh, potentially form. A TUIP, which is actually a very good procedure for relatively small prostates, would be a, a reasonable thing to do. There are ejaculatory-sparing TURs when you just take care of a middle lobe. Uh, we're actually presenting some data tomorrow about that that you can actually preserve ejaculation. And regardless of how you do this with either a laser or electrical approaches, I think removing some tissue would also be a reasonable thing
1: to do. Great, so the salient points are gland size, uh, volumetric measurements, and his request to maintain sexual activity. So let's say it's the same guy, or maybe his brother, and uh, same issues, volume of the prostate is still the 35-gram size, except now we have this midline structure, Chuck Chuck Welliver How are you gonna approach such a
0: patient as this? The important, really the important point here is that very nicely uh, marked median lobe with the asterisk. With him already being on medications, he's unlikely to respond to additional medical therapy. And we do see that the prostate size is reasonable to consider a minimally invasive option. Okay, so
1: tell me about the new new perioperative testing and how it relates
0: to this particular case. We felt that uh, with the advent of all these new options uh, that you should consider uh, an an assessment of prostate size and shape. This can be done uh, with an ultrasound either transrectally or abdominally. Additionally, you could do cystoscopy or a previously performed cross-sectional imaging study within the last 12 months. Great, so if we look back in the 1994
1: guidelines, there were specific comments about not doing imaging in such a case. It was optional if patients were uh, being teed up for surgery. In 2004 and 2010 guidelines, imaging was a low priority. Uh, and in 2010, we really adopted uh, the ICUD uh, algorithm. But now, Chuck, what's different? Why suddenly the big change in
0: the guidelines? The imaging consideration was important, as really the treatment options for these men have expanded, and they can really fill some niches in particular guys. Particularly on any sort of imaging or even on cystoscopy, this intravesical protrusion with the median lobe really does predict poorly with either surveillance or adding additional medical treatments for a lot of men and is somewhat predictive of urodynamic obstruction. And with the uh, ranges needed here for MIST between 30 and 80, it allows you to qualify these men for these treatments.
1: Okay, good. So um, what about the new statements for convective water
0: therapy, Chuck? So we'll talk about some of those minimally invasive options. For men in the 30 to 80 range, convective water therapy is a reasonable option and could potentially be offered. However, we do need to discuss the possibility uh, of long-term efficacy and durability as we just don't have that information at this time.
1: Right, so these come in as conditional recommendations because we do have a limited number of studies of not, uh, not real long uh, follow-up. And then how
0: about lift, Chuck? Erectal lift would be an option for this man based on his prostate size and his interest in preserving erection uh, and ejaculation. However, with the medial lobe or the median lobe in this man, it would not be a good option. And in men that you do uh, recommend lift for, have a discussion, um, a shared medical decision discussion with them. You should discuss that Lutz reduction and Qmax improvement may not be as good as uh, something like a TERP. Excellent. So. Um, Harris, we have a 70-year-old guy, more of a traditional
1: BPH uh, patient, Um, lots of complaints, the score 27. He's got a bigger prostate, uh, 80 grams. How are you going to approach him, Harris?
3: Well, I assume he's uh, failed medical therapy, and if not, I would consider that. Um, However, uh, if we're proceeding on to uh, surgical therapy, I think we have a number of options. Uh, I think we can consider your standard uh, transurethral resection of the prostate with either the bipolar or monopolar technique. One could consider the uh, PVP or photovaporization. Although the size is up in the range when you get into the 60 to 80 gram range, there is an increased risk of uh, conversion uh, to a uh, TURP. Um, and then there's the option of um, laser, enucle- laser enucleation. Uh, which is size uh, independent. What I would not do, however, because of this presumably obstructing median lobe, I do not think he would be a good candidate for the lift procedure.
1: Okay. Yeah, so he's right on the margin, right on the margin between where lift and and um, uh, resume or steam is not really, uh, probably uh, not the right idea. So um, to the whole panel itself, we've got 81-year-old male He's got a relatively large uh, prostate at 130 grams. He's almost in retention. Very slow flow rates, um, although he's still getting it empty. And he's been taking the best of the mtops, Alpha Blocker and 5-ARIs, and still not, long, not uh, helping anymore. Steve, how are you going to approach this guy?
2: So again, it comes to making the diagnosis of his most bothersome symptoms and making sure that we've tried to exhaust medical therapy, which here we have, maybe look at his nocturia again. But he's got a large prostate, and I think that the traditional methods that we've used such as TUR would be very, very appropriate. I would just add uh, on Chuck's and Harris's point that if the patient has predominantly middle-lobe protrusion that perhaps a TUR would also be a very, very good and we can perhaps preserve ejaculation. But this is a patient who I think most, most urologists would be very comfortable TURing in some form or fashion, uh, whether it's with resection electrically or with laser. And while we didn't comment in the guidelines for this, but there's newer technology uh, in the future uh, that perhaps would also be reasonable. But again, sticking to what our guidelines are would be more the traditional electrical and laser.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, any role for arterial embolization? What do our new guidelines tell us about that?
2: Well, we're pretty clear that, uh, and this was unanimous, that PAE, unless it's in a clinical study, should not be, uh, should not be done, and I think that's, uh, as I said, that's pretty unanimous. Uh, so I would not use it, uh, the PAE in, in this situation.
1: Yeah. So there, there are not many statements where there is unanimous. Uh, voting, and there was with PAE. I think there's a message in that. Um, So uh, uh, concerning simple prostatectomy, Steve, when does this start coming up on your radar, at 130 grams or someplace south of that?
2: For me personally, it's somewhere north of that, frankly, uh, because given the improvements with TUR types of procedures, I think we're getting more and more comfortable with doing let's say bipolar, because we don't worry about longer resection times if we need to because of the non-TUR syndrome. So it depends on the patient, but you know I've been doing as high as 150-160 grams. That being said, I think people would begin to convert over to an open prostatectomy. Uh, Whether it's simple or robotically done, I think that would be very very reasonable.
1: Okay, so Harris, do you ever use five ARIs before tackling some of these big prostates?
3: Uh, It turns out that many of them are already on five ARIs, Uh and uh, I know there's been some discussion about it. It certainly helps with uh, hematuria related to BPH, and uh, there's some suggestion that it may uh, reduce bleeding at the time of uh, surgery.
1: That's right. There's a limited amount of data on that, but certainly um, something that might be as a useful adjunct. So we do have a statement about simple prostatectomy where I think this case is kind of leading us, and that's if a, if a surgeon is a urologist considering this, um, we included not just open simple prostatectomy, but also included robotic um, and laparoscopic techniques because that data has matured since the last guideline. So you'll see this as a moderate recommendation um, and a grade C. And for those, um, Homeophiles, if that's a word, um, uh, that uh, whole app seems to be um, useful in, in this population, in this cohort, plus you know, just about all the sizes, so it has that uh, utility.
2: There seems to certainly be a, a regional or uh, geographic predilection, if you will. I'm not talking about the United States, there are certain countries, for example, in Spain where they do this a lot. They're very comfortable with doing that. In the United States, it's a little bit less. So I think we're learning that different folks have different uh, approaches to this, all reasonable. It's for us to be able to deliver, I think, the best recommendations about, based on the data, what would be reasonable options here. Right.
3: And I also think that um, in our guidelines, we mentioned that it depends on the expertise of the treating physician uh, in relation to Steve's point.
1: And and that's that's a purposeful um, wording that we don't wanna make strict demarcations between when to do a TURP, when to do an OPEN, because every surgeon's gonna have his own expertise and comfort level, and that's as, as urologists get comfortable with one t- technique or another, the guidelines want to able to accommodate uh, that type of practice, and I, and I think our statements do that. Okay, um, as we mentioned, as Steve mentioned, uh, PAE, um, the one statement where we had A unanimous vote. So, um, uh, I think again, testing. So, the statement, our statement actually reads that the PAE should only be considered in an experimental setting, essentially, where there's uh, it's clear that this is still investigational. And this is based primarily on the poor quality of the existing studies, the the small quantity of the existing studies. So, until we get further um, understanding of that, it's probably going to uh, stay that way for our AUA guidelines. Okay, here's a, a case that we all get, uh, if, we, we try to run from, but they tend to find us. He's um, 70 years old, he's uh, got medical issues which, main, which demand that he maintain anticoagulated. Um, no way of getting around this. He's got a pretty, uh, pretty big sized gland. Chuck,
0: if you can't run away, what are you gonna do? The crux of this case really is the, the warfarin and the aspirin, and not every man that's on warfarin is the same. You know, a man that maybe has a distant DVT could very likely reasonably be off this for a surgical procedure. However, a man that has a mitral valve or something like that is certainly a different uh, risk profile. So, um, how about a mist? How about a mist for such a guy? Mist would certainly be a reasonable option. It's definitely not forbidden in this type of patient as long as his prostate's within reason. Um, but you would want to consider potentially ceasing the warfarin if it's acceptable.
1: Harris, can you comment on enucleation in this kind of patient, uh, anticoagulated patient?
3: Well, I think this would be a perfect uh, patient for uh, either photovaporization or laser enucleation, as we stated in the guidelines. Um, And due to the uh, decreased depth of penetration, um, the secondary bleeds are less uh, common compared to uh, techniques where, the depth of penetration is uh, more.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So my, my own practice, when I get confronted with these kinds of men, um, I'm on the phone with the referring physician, cardiologist, who's ever run the show on the Coumadin or an, antiplatelet drugs, asking them, can I bridge him? What can I get away with? Or do, do I really, am I really forced to keep him on therapy? It's worth the phone call. They, they sometimes don't understand the complexity of managing these kinds of patients. So I would encourage the crowd to consider that as well.
2: But if you can bridge them, then obviously yeah. you know, that's the key. So I And mean, if you can get away with that, then a lot of, the technolo- that lot of techniques that we would use without the uh, patients on anticoagulation would be fine, whether it's bipolar and obviously, as Harris mentioned, the laser options.
1: Right, yeah. So um, you can read the uh, statement for yourself, but essentially in these high-risk patients, when we reviewed the data, we thought... Uh, if they need to be maintained on anticoagulation, that whole lap PVP and thulium, something we, we didn't mention, but that data we did review, that these are all our art- alternatives. And this, because of the way those studies are reported, it's only expert opinion and that was our feeling and and, and good luck with that guy when he shows up. Okay, we have a couple more that are uh, worth mentioning. So here we have a frail guy. He's in retention. He's failed trials without catheter several times. He's on meds. It's not happening. Before, before uh, he shows up in your office, his residual is in the 500s, and he's got a pretty good-sized gland. Steve, do you, do, do you need to do your dynamics?
2: Well, need is. Uh is a proportionate question, I guess. So I don't know if you need to do them. Um, Obviously, they can help in elucidating uh, whether or not the patient has bladder outlet obstruction, which will be about 70% of the time. And we always get into that question about the predictive nature of a patient is obstructed on urodynamics. Is that going to alter the course of some type of intervention? So you know, there are debates on both sides of the issue. We do, but... uh, I, I think that in terms of, as, as you have here from the uh, statement, it's, uh, it's variable.
1: Okay, so um, Harris, what about postoid residuals? Perhaps not in this guy, who we know is already in retention, but your more standard patient.
3: Well, I think we all agreed, uh, and it's why we call it a clinical principle, because I think most of us do this in our patients, is to obtain a uh, postvoid residual. Uh, The predictive evidence, however, is uh, limited, and there's always a debate as to what's a high residual and uh, what's not, but it does allow us to um, give some uh, assessment of the ability of the bladder uh, to empty. What it does not tell us, however, is whether or not the patient is obstruction, although there is some correlation, and they're concerned when it's very elevated, as in the case you just showed, this may indicate detrusor dysfunction. And in that case, I would highly consider pressure flow urodynamics because the concern being that if you have an underactive detrusor or a areflexic detrusor, that you can prevent uh, this patient from undergoing unnecessary surgery. Yeah.
1: Okay. And then, um, Chuck, tell me about flow, flow rate. Why? Why is recommendation for flow rate show up on this guideline?
0: Flow prior rate. to intervention. The flow potentially helpful as it does help you stratify these men out to some degree without even doing aerodynamics. A lower flow rate, whatever number you like to choose, whether it's five or 10, does have some ability to predict bladder outlet obstruction, although you can see with the numbers there, it's far from 100%. In a man that does have a high Q max, over 15, uh, it does kind of lead you away from surgery, but it doesn't have the same value as aerodynamics pressure flow. Mm.
1: So, so those are two changes in the new guidelines. One is at some point before an intervention, no post-flight residual. That is new. And the other is should consider, not a mandate, but should consider a flow rate for the reasons that Chuck and Steve and, and Harris have elucidated. So regardless, those are things to think about. And then uh, pressure flow study, Harris, anything else to add with this?
3: Uh, again, it's it's debatable, but um, it is the uh, most definitive way of determining bladder outlet obstruction, which is what we are trying to treat with these uh, surgical uh, procedures. Um, it is more complex to do, and maybe not everyone can do it in their office, but I think it's certainly something to consider, and hence why we uh, gave it uh, expert opinion.
1: Yeah, expert opinion, and if there's subtle differences and should consider and should be considered. So we, we're gonna want you to think about it, but we're not telling you that it's a bad idea not to have it. And in a sense, we're, at, we're giving urologists latitude to do these things which may make their assessment and hopefully their outcome uh, a, little bit, a, a little bit better. But so, one of the things, you know, th-
2: as we struggle to analyze this data because there's a paucity of definitive data, we also looked at it as an opportunity for us as a community to be able to assess what are the actual baseline metrics that help determine success. What are the uh, metrics, for example, for residual? We never have that number. We always talk about a high residual, but I can probably go around this audience and get about 50 or 60 answers of what a high residual actually is and whether it's predictive. So I call on the community to be able to begin to define those answers because ultimately that will help us predict which patients may have treatment success and which will have treatment failure, which is ultimately the game, the, the process that we want to do with our patients.
0: Right. Additionally, one of the things we discussed is that in a lot of these studies that look at medications and treatment options, men with high PVRs are inherently excluded from, the, from that study. So we really don't have good data on men that have a PVR over 150 or 300 to really follow them and know how they do.
1: Yeah, post-load residual, the meaning of a post residual is unmet need for us. And that's been carried down through all three guidelines. We really don't have a litmus test about it, and we didn't answer it this time either because papers aren't there. All right, a couple more cases. Here's our, here's our man. He's 70. He's got LUTs. He's had no previous treatment. And for one reason or another, you end up looking in and you see something like this. Harris, what are you going to do?
3: Well, I think with the presence of a bladder stone, that needs to be treated. I think the the question that every urologist uh, has to deal with is, well, why is the bladder stone there? And the concern is that it's due to bladder outlet obstruction and incomplete emptying, and should one uh, address the outlet at the the same time? And I think that's controversial. Uh, Personally, uh, I probably would... uh, Treat the uh, stone, recognizing that he has an uh, elevated residual. Discuss with the patient the pros and cons of uh, surgery, particularly as it relates to uh, sexual and ejaculatory function. And make a decision, shared decision making with the patient as to whether or not an outlet reducing procedure, i.e., uh, PVP, TERP, et cetera, or uh, proceeding on to uh, watchful waiting, active surveillance or uh, instituting medical treatment. Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I guess the, the lesson is with a stone in the past, classically, that was an indication for surgery. When we looked at the data, that, that indication really isn't there. But he needs treatment. So it would be okay if it's a first-time patient, treatment-naive, first stone to consider, just like Harris said, stone, uh, maybe medical management or it's, it's not wrong to institute surgery at that time. You still have that option, although some type of intervention other than just removal of stone is probably the right move. And again, expert opinion.
2: Well, it also allows the opportunity, we talk about shared decision making, this is one of them, where a patient understands uh, that he may have predisposition, like a big middle lobe, that predisposes them to get a recurrent stone. Not necessarily the patient, if they asymptomatic, is going to want something done about their prostate, but at least they should understand that when you take care of the stone, there may be something coming down the future, and they should understand in terms of how to manage this and what the opportunities are in the future as well.
1: Okay, great. I'm going to have our last case here. And um, I've clearly outlined it. He's 71, he has his bladder diverticula, diverticulum, Lots of symptoms, a high pulsed
0: residual. Chuck, what do you think? One of the things we felt is the independent presence of a bladder diverticula doesn't necessitate a surgical procedure. Maybe in this man that has a high PVR and has significant symptoms or maybe recurrent UTIs, something like that, it would be more of a consideration, but sort of the surprise bladder diverticula doesn't force your hand for a surgical management. Yeah.
1: So I think the context is something like, with increased imaging, we're finding diverticulum. These are showing up at a urologist's office. If they're asymptomatic, are we, are we required to intervene? And, and we felt, again, as a principle, that in, if it's truly asymptomatic and not otherwise affecting his health, you probably could watch such a patient. There's a kind of a, a clinical principle that's really not part of the standard, uh, part of our guidelines, that says, um, that in these men who you're doing this act of surveillance and they have these risk factors like worse symptoms or perhaps um, a slightly high pulse rate residual, those would be guys that you would be back into the fold perhaps more frequently. So you can personalize the follow-up from that for them. All right, well listen, I wanna thank the panel for uh, participation, really appreciate um, your guys' willingness to do this. I'd like to thank the 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 entire guideline panel for for their help, and uh, particularly the folks at the AUA um, uh, office. Um, There are 24 statements. We can't handle all 24 here, but I think there's an opportunity for all of you to look at those new guidelines and try to incorporate them into your practices as you see fit. Thank you.
0: With AUA 2019 fast approaching,
3: we thought we'd ask a couple people, why should you come to the AUA annual meeting? So this is the best, one of the best places to be in to learn and continue to give the high quality urology care to our patients. This is a very, very good place to to see all those visions about urology.
0: For a resident or fellow or any young urologist, it really does connect you with um, all the other Uh, experts in all fields of urology and to learn the new technology that's available uh, out there I think it's, it's a great opportunity.